Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. So it was about four years ago that I presented to the elders a succession and transition plan that we discussed and then agreed that we would, we would use uh, in identifying our next lead pastor about the time I would reach my 67th birthday, which is just a couple of weeks away. And so for the last uh, four years, I've been cognizant that this day was on the horizon and I've thought a great deal over these years about what it means to finish well. Uh, not that I'm ready to be done with ministries. I've told most everybody I'm not retiring. I'm redeploying. I'm, I'm dialing back a little bit. I'm stepping down from the lead pastor position, but I'm not done with ministry. Uh, just uh, ready to pass the baton of leadership to the next generation. And along the way, it has become painfully obvious to me that a number of my peers have left the game early. They uh, crashed and burned before they reached the finish line. Some examples of it all too close to home is men that I have worked with over the years in ministry have been forced to leave the ministry. And it seems just about every time you turn around, there's another megachurch pastor who is going down in flames, accused of immorality or abuse of power. But it doesn't only happen to pastors. A number of years ago, I shared with you this example about the famous uh, French soccer player, Zinedine Zidane, who was one of the best soccer players in European history. He was uh, quite an excellent player and uh, had uncommon skill and a penchant for big game goals. Led his national team, the French team, to the World Cup Championship in 1996. And eight years later, Zidane reported that he was going to retire after the 2006 World Cup. The French were not expected to go very deep in that tournament because uh, they were an older team and, and didn't, they weren't expected to hold up very well against younger competition, largely uh, based on the rumor that Zidane had lost a step or two and wasn't the player he used to be. But Zidane played amazingly well throughout the tournament. And when the smoke had cleared, he was prepared to lead his team to a second World Cup championship, this time against their rival team, Italy. Now, in that game, Zidane started the game out brilliantly. In fact, he scored the first goal. The Italians, however, responded with a goal of their own a few minutes later. And then the, the score held at 1-1 one one, all the way into overtime. And the stage was set for Zidane once again to come through with one, one of his big-time game-ending goals and come away the hero leading his team to yet another World Cup championship. But something happened in overtime. He began a conversation 
with one of the Italian players, Marco Materazzi. And Materazzi said something offensive to Zidane. Zidane turned around, butted Materazzi in the chest with his head, knocking the Italian player to the ground. The referee saw it and held up a red card, ejecting Zidane from the game. And so instead of leading his team to glory, he walked off the pitch for the very last time as big screens around the stadium played this shameful moment when he couldn't control his temper. And he will probably forever be most remembered for that one moment. You know, many of us have spent years building a solid resume in the workplace, building a solid resume as faithful spouses, as loving parents and grandparents, as devoted followers of Jesus. The last thing we want to do is to blow it with the finish line in sight. We have too many examples of people around us crashing and burning us, uh, burning out uh, late in life, but what we need are more examples of people who finish well. And that's why I'm glad that we can look today at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and the example of the Apostle Paul and some of his last recorded words. We're down to the last two weeks in our series we've called Pass the Baton, We've been looking at this little letter that Paul wrote to one of his younger protégés, Timothy. Timothy, we believe, is still leading the church at Ephesus, where Paul had placed him and given that, him, him that assignment. And Paul himself is likely in prison for the second time, uh, awaiting his execution. It's around 67 AD, maybe 68 AD. The Emperor Nero has been the emperor for a while now and has been vigorously persecuting Christians. Paul is about 62 years old, an old man by standards of the Roman Empire, where the life expectancy was only about 48. And Paul is very aware that his life will soon be coming to an end. And even at this late date, he is apparently preoccupied with just one thing, and that's to finish strong. Finish strong. And what an inspiration and a great example he is, especially to those of us who are aware that the clock is ticking down. Especially for those of us who want to be careful not to stumble and, and, and fall before we hit the finish line. And so here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, I think we find here by the example of the Apostle Paul, there are at least two requirements for finishing well, finishing strong in the Christian life. The first requirement, if you're going to finish strong, is you've got to make sure to pass the baton. You've got to make sure to pass the baton. See, it's important for us to realize that the race we are running is actually a relay. The faith that was passed on to you by someone else who went before you, you've now run your leg of the race, and your job is to make sure to pass on what you've been given to someone who's coming after you. Paul has been very careful to do that, raising up young protégés like Timothy and Titus. And what he says to us in the first five verses of chapter 4 are like his baton pass to Timothy. It's like he's saying here, I'm just about done with my leg of the race. Now you take the baton. It's your race to run now. And this is why Paul's charge to Timothy takes on such a somber tone here in verse 1, he wants Timothy to understand the significance of the moment when he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. The charge he gives Timothy is a very somber one, calling God himself as his witness. 
And Jesus, too, he reminds Timothy of his accountability to Christ who is coming again to establish his kingdom and to sit in judgment on us all, whether the dead or the alive, at the moment of his appearing. None will escape Jesus' judgment. Least of all, Timothy, to whom so much has been entrusted and into whom Paul has poured his life like a son. And here's the essence of Paul's charge to Timothy in verse 2. He says, preach the word. This is what I charge you to do in the presence of God and of Jesus himself. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. That's the main exhortation here. The preacher is not to preach his own opinions, but is to proclaim God's eternal and authoritative word of truth. At the end of chapter 3, Paul had talked about the, the glory of God's Word, the power of God's Word in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Remember, we talked about it last week, how all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in <clears throat> righteousness. This is the Word that is to be preached, the God-breathed truth of, of the Scriptures. I uh, have taught preaching classes on many occasions in seminary, and with my beginning preaching students, I always start with a lecture from this verse, exhorting my students to preach the word. That whatever, whatever else you want to preach, you make sure you're preaching the word of God. Not your own opinions, not what's the latest news or the conspiracy theory that most catches your fancy. Preach the word. And I tell them, you know, I am so determined about this. I'm telling you that you have no authority to stand up in front of a congregation on Sunday morning and try to tell them how to live their lives apart from the truth of this book. Preach the word. And if you preach anything other than the word, you know, if, if the Lord would allow me to do so, if you preach anything other than the word, I promise you I'm going to rise up from my grave and haunt you. <laughs> preach the word. Be ready in season and out whether it's in style or not, whether it's politically correct or not, whether it's well-received or not. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Well, Paul had just told us it's useful for all those things, right? Back in chapter 3, it's, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So use it. Use it for those purposes with complete patience and teaching. Teaching there is a word that connotes careful instruction and patience has to do with, I think, the idea of not beating people over the head with it, but, but gently and lovingly instructing them in the ways of God. And Paul wants Timothy to know there's a certain urgency about this because a time is coming when people won't want to hear from God anymore. He says in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Boy, does that sound like today or what? You know, we live in a time when people listen to all kinds of, of nonsense about how to live their lives before they'll ever pick up a Bible or listen to a good Bible-based sermon. And this idea of accumulating teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear, that is literally being fulfilled in our lifetime through social media. You realize that? That all of social media is set up on algorithms that feed you more and more of what you want to hear. Oh, you like that? Well, then you'll like this too. And you'll like this other thing. And, and, and they're telling you what you want to hear. 
People are listening to all kinds of nonsense today. They're less and less inclined to listen to what God has to say. I mean, how many of you have tried to share a, a sermon CD or a Christian podcast or a YouTube link of a, of a good Bible-based sermon with a friend or loved one? You thought that, that this sermon would really help them only to be rebuffed by them? And who do they listen to? Well, anyone who'll tell them what they want to hear. Uh, you're, you're fine just as you are. You don't need to change a thing. Don't let anybody try to change your truth. You can speak your desired future into existence. You can have whatever you want in life. You just have to believe in yourself. That all sounds so good to itching ears. Do you know why? Because all of that are just variations on the theme of the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Go ahead, eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. God doesn't want you to eat from it because he knows that when you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be as God. Knowing good from evil, you can determine good and evil for yourself. They're all forms of a lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. You will be as God. I mean, think about it. What does the Bible say? The Bible says only God is fine just as he is. Only God's truth is unchanging. Your future is in God's hands. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So teachers who say, well, you're fine just as you are, you get to say what's true. You get to determine the future. Believe in yourself. They're basically telling you, you can be as God. No wonder it feels so good to our itching ears. But none of it's true. And piling up more and more and more teachers who, who say it won't make it true. The truth is, we're sinners, but God can make saints of us. The truth is that God gets to decide what's true, and he reveals it to us. The truth is that God holds your future in his hands, and if you belong to him, he will be at work in everything for your good. The truth is, you've got to stop trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus instead, and you will be saved. The time will come when people will be more inclined to listen to fairy tales made up by self-help authors and New Age gurus and prosperity gospel preachers and politicians all stroking the ego of the masses, telling them that they can be as God. They can be the change. They can create a new world order, at least their own best life. Timothy, you may find yourself tempted to jump on that bandwagon and preach your own version of you can be as God It'll be a whole lot more popular than urging people to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. You'll probably get more followers that way, but don't you do it. He says in verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul is giving Timothy the full benefit of his experience as he passes the baton to him. He's saying, this is the race I've run, now you be sure to stay in the same lane where everyone else is getting all fuzzy-headed, wanting to be popular, you stay sober-minded, thinking clearly. Endure suffering. Endure hardship. Be willing to be unpopular, to be that guy everybody hates because he's so politically incorrect. Daring to call sin, sin. Calling people to repentance. Insisting that we all need salvation. That's doing the work of an evangelist. Being a proclaimer of the good news. That yes, though we are sinners condemned in our sin, dead in our trespasses and sin, 
God loved us so much that he didn't want to leave us that way. And so he sent his son, his eternal son, whose life was of infinite worth, to come into this world as a baby, to become one of us so that he could represent humanity. He lived a sinless life and then gave that life of infinite worth on the cross as a ransom that sets us free from the guilt and grip of sin. God raised him on the third day, victor over sin and death, so that we, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus, can have the forgiveness of sin, a new life with God, an eternal life beside. That's the good news. Stay focused on that essential message. Do the work of an evangelist. All my life, I admired the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. I think I saw him preach in person for the first time when I was six years old. Uh, but one of the things I really admired about Billy Graham was how he stayed focused on the gospel. Didn't matter what the context, who was interviewing him, he had a way of always taking a conversation and turning it back to the simple truth that Jesus came and died for our sins, and we have to believe in him. Uh, there was somebody who worked for, the doctor, for Dr. Graham and, and the Billy Graham Association. His name was A. Larry Ross. Uh, he, he did uh, media and public relations for the Graham organization for 23 years. And Ross pointed out that this was one of the distinctives of Graham's ministry. In fact, he said, you could ask Billy Graham how he managed to get his suits dry cleaned when he was on the road, and somehow he turned that around to the gospel. <laughs> Ross said that for many years before working for Graham, he worked in the corporate world setting up interviews on television, for instance, with corporate executives and whatnot. And and whenever one of these uh, interviewees would go in, they'd put the mic on them, and then they'd say, let's do a sound check. And, and almost invariably, the, the interviewee would, uh, would count to 10 or say their ABCs or talk about what they had for breakfast. He said, not Dr. Graham. Whenever Dr. Graham was doing a uh, mic check, he would recite John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, Ross said, I once asked Dr. Graham why he did that. He said, well, it's because if for some reason I can't manage to get the gospel in during the interview, at least the cameraman will have heard it. <laughs> he was that focused on the gospel. And Paul wants Timothy to be that faithful to the gospel message. Do the work of an evangelist. And to do that will be to fill up, fulfill what Paul left him there in Ephesus to do. I want you to understand that Paul is instructing Timothy with his words, but he's backed it up by everything that he has shown Timothy by his example. Paul has preached the word in season and out. Paul has reproved, rebuked, and exhorted others with complete patience and careful instruction. Paul has remained clear-headed when others have gone astray. Paul has endured great hardship for Christ and even now sits on death row for his faithfulness to Jesus. Paul has faithfully done the work of an evangelist, telling people about Jesus everywhere he has gone. Paul has fulfilled the ministry that God has given him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And what I want you to see is that passing the baton to the next generation is not just preaching to them about how they should run their leg of the race. It's a matter of showing them by your example what it means to run the race well. Finishing well means that by word and example, you pass the baton of faith to someone who will run the next leg of the race in your place. Paul had protégés like Timothy. And I think it begs the question, who's your Timothy? Who's your Timothy? 
As a follower of Jesus, you can't finish your leg of the race without passing the baton onto someone else. We should all have a protege or two in the faith, someone who will live out the faith in the next generation. Instruct them with your words, but show them by your example. Make sure to pass on what was entrusted to you to faithful people who will in turn pass it on to others. Now, for a long time now, I've had a burden to have younger men in my life who would be ready one day to receive the baton of pastoral leadership whenever I would finish my leg of the race. That baton was passed on to me many years ago by my pastor, Bruce Strickland. And I've had the privilege of participating in the preparation of probably two or three dozen seminary interns, associate pastors, youth pastors, and former students. And I have to say, one of my greatest joys at this stage of my life is to see my protégés doing well, to hear them preach, for instance, and think, man, that was a good word. I wish I'd thought to say it that way. I, I told one of my mentors in ministry about the transitions that are taking place here at Bayside. I saw Bob this summer at the funeral, as a matter of fact, for my, my first mentor, Bruce Strickland. We were both there because we were both influenced strongly by, by Bruce's life and ministry. Uh, Bruce... Uh, was a preacher and a teacher of preaching. Bob was a preacher and a teacher of preaching. I became a teacher of preaching and a, and a pastor. And so Bob and I were kind of talking shop, and, and I was telling him what was going on here at Bayside and how he's likely stepping back uh, at the end of this year. And he said, well, how do you feel about it? Who, who are they looking at? I said, well, the, you know, there's one of the guys on staff, our teaching pastor, Ken Carlson. The search committee is really focused on him right now. And I I'm pretty sure he's going to be the guy. And he said, well, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, to be honest, there's no one I'd rather have as my pastor than Ken. And I said, I said, Bob, you can relate to this as an old professor of preaching. Ken is one of the few guys I can listen to a sermon without trying to rewrite his sermon in my head. He's that good and that true to the word. You know, we can, at some point, think back over the 12 years that I've been here at Bayside as a senior pastor and, and, and give thanks for all that God has done, but I think one of the best things that I've done while here at Bayside is to invest in men like Ken and James and Joe, knowing that the church would be in good hands when my leg of the relay was complete. And by the way, this exhortation to pass the baton isn't just for pastors. I think to a text thread that goes back to August 29 of this year, just a few weeks ago, my daughter Emily, who is also a pastor's wife, was texting uh, Diane and me on our mother's birthday. Um, both Diane's mom and my mom shared August 29th as their birthday, and they're both with the Lord now. Diane's mom went to be with the Lord just earlier this year. And Emily texted us in the morning. She said, is it both grandma's birthdays today? Happy heavenly birthdays to them. Really thankful for their faith in Jesus and the investment in the local church and how that impacted the parents that raised me. To which I responded, amen. <laughs> Diane said, yes, today is their birthday, my first without my mom here. They truly were strong in their faith and in their belief in the local church. I never knew anything else, so becoming a pastor's wife was very natural as I loved the church and its impact on my life. Emily responds, what a blessing. What a testimony to being 
faithful to raise your kids in the church, trusting God with your kids and valuing the church's role in their lives without being able to see or predict the outcome and how much it might influence everything? Diane responds, yes, and both sets of parents never flinched about us being in ministry. They were proud of us, actually, even though it meant not living near each other. It was a sacrifice they made, which I now understand differently as a grandma. And now, Diane says to Emily, and now it's your turn to pass it on to your kids. I'm so thankful for the importance you and Ross put on knowing God and being involved in the local church The ministry changes, but the truth that needs to be shared stays the same. That exchange warmed my heart, as I'm pretty sure I witnessed the passing of the baton from my wife to my daughter. Finish strong. Paul's example shows us finish strong. If you're going to finish strong, it requires, first of all, that you make sure to pass the baton. And that is our second requirement for finishing strong. And Paul shows us again by his example, make sure to keep your eyes on the right prize. Keep your eyes on the right prize. One of the things that's obvious from verse 6 is that Paul was very aware of how close he is to the end of his life. And he says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, this idea of a drink offering goes back to the Old Testament where just before a lamb was put on the altar to be sacrificed as a burnt offering, an offering of wine was poured out on the lamb. And Paul is using this language to suggest that he sees his own life as a sacrifice that had been poured out for the gospel. Four years earlier, he had written from his first imprisonment in Rome, He wrote to the church at Philippi about the possibility of his life being poured out as a sacrificial drink offering. And now, four years later, he's saying, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The end is that near. The cup is almost empty. He says, the time of my departure has come. The time, literally, of my loosing. And this word loosing can be used of a a vessel being loosed from its moorings so it can begin a journey. Or the, the... lines on a tent being loose so that the tent can be broken down again to move on to the next place in the journey. Either way you take it, Paul is convinced that his martyrdom is imminent, which of course heightens the urgency of his appeal to Timothy. Timothy will have to stand on his own and shoulder responsibility without Paul, without his advice, without his direction, without his encouragement. But Paul rests in the satisfaction of having finished strong. And so he says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When he says, I have fought the good fight here, it's a very interesting turn of phrase. You don't think of a fight as being good. And the word good that's used here is a word that literally means noble or beautiful. I have fought the the noble fight, the, the beautiful fight. And some think that maybe he's thinking about a wrestling match, which was regarded as a particularly noble form of competition in Paul's day. I have fought the beautiful fight. When Paul exhorted Timothy back in in 1 Timothy 6 to fight the good fight, it was a call to, to flee from sin and to pursue purity. And here Paul is saying with a clean conscience that he has done so. He has fought that good fight. He says, I have finished the race. In his last meeting with the elders of Ephesus, 
That was a face-to-face meeting that took place in Acts chapter 20. Paul said on that occasion that his aspiration was to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now here it is about seven years later, he's writing back to that same church and those same elders, and he's able to say, I've done that. I finished the work the Lord gave me to do as the apostle to the Gentiles. I have faithfully and completely run my leg of the relay. I have kept the faith. I want you to see, this is like Paul stretching for the finish line tape, right? I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, that idea of keeping the faith probably has to do with how in ancient times, whenever somebody was about to compete in in a a sport, uh, they took an oath to compete by the rules. Kind of like Olympic athletes take that Olympic oath to this very day. And, And Paul is basically saying, I have played by the rules. I have... I have kept the faith. I have not fouled out so as to be disqualified. I have been loyal to my divine mandate right to the end. When I think of somebody being faithful to the end, I think of the Reverend Dr. John R. W. Stott, who was a hero of the faith, you know, one of the finest leaders of the church in the 20th century. Dr. Stott was a rector of all souls in London. He was a prolific author, an amazing preacher. He was somebody who um, was a global leader and a friend of of many around the world. Oz Guinness, who was an author, went to visit Stott several weeks before he passed away. And he said, we spent a pleasant afternoon reminiscing about so many memories that we shared together. And then he said, before I left, I asked Dr. Stott, how can I pray for you? And he said, there lay Dr. Stott on his back, weak, and in a very hoarse voice, he said, pray that I'll be faithful to Jesus to my very last breath. And Osginus says, would that such a prayer be the passion of our generation too? Pray that I'll be faithful to Jesus to my very last breath. Well, Paul finished strong because he had kept his eyes on the right prize. You've heard the expression, keep your eyes on the prize. Well, I have a feeling many people don't finish well these days because their eyes are on the prize, but it's the wrong prize. Take the example of Gideon, for instance, in the Old Testament, who had won an amazing victory and the people wanted to make him king. And he said, no, don't make me king, just make me rich like one. His eyes were on the wrong prize and not coincidentally, There's not another positive thing written about Gideon from that point forward in his life. There was David, who in the prime of his career, treated himself to a night with another man's wife and then tried to cover it up by having her husband killed. And he suffered for that in in the life of his family for the rest of his days. When TV preachers live in mansions, multi-million dollar mansions, and drive around in Bentleys and fly around in Gulfstream jets, and when the world's most powerful men have affairs with White House interns and, and prostitutes, when any of us start chasing fame or fortune or power or sex, when we live for anything other than the favor of God, when his rewards become less important to us than what the world has to offer, our eyes are on the wrong prize. But Paul finished strong in life because he had kept his eyes on the right prize. We see that in some of his epistles. In Colossians 3, for instance, he says, Whatever you do, 
Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He says in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul lived his whole life in Christ in pursuit of a reward he knew that only God could give. He didn't get tripped up with pursuit of a big reputation or more power or material wealth or the next sexual conquest. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And as he's crossing the finish line, he's able to declare in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The word crown there is the word stephanos, which is the victor's crown, the, the laurel wreath that is placed on the head of the one who wins the race. It's the crown of righteousness, he says, the reward that is the final righteous state of believers, eternal life, the favor of God the Father, the mansion prepared for us in glory, the inheritance that became ours when we were adopted as daughters and sons and sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing what is yet to come, the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And as Paul is about to cross the finish line, he says, this is what I've been living for all these years. This is the prize I've kept my eye on. That amazing moment when Jesus, the righteous judge of the race, will put the victor's crown on my head. And here's the beautiful thing. We can look forward to the very same reward. Because did you notice at the end of the verse, Paul says, this is not only for me, but for all who have loved his appearing. If you long for the Lord's appearing, it means you're not living your life for this world's rewards. It means your eye is on the right prize. It means there is no prospect more thrilling than to see Jesus face to face. No moment you long for more than to be enveloped in his loving embrace. So ask yourself, if Jesus were to appear on this stage in the next moment, what would be your first instinct, to run toward him or to kind of run off and hide from him knowing I've got some work to do? That tells you a lot about what you've been living for. Whether your eyes are on the right prize. Now to be clear, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We've been redeemed by his blood. We have been brought from death to life. We've been adopted into his family and made heirs of a vast spiritual inheritance. We're being made into masterpieces of his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're equipped by God's spirit to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We get to live our lives for the praise of his glory. So let's keep our eyes on the right prize and finish strong. I love the story that Harry Heinz tells. He talks about how he, he went to uh, Arlington National Cemetery where he says, I, I glimpsed the glory of finishing a task well. He talks about how he had been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier on many occasions and had watched the changing of the guard. He said, I was always moved by the precision and the solemnity of that ceremony, the changing of the guard. But he said, on this one occasion, something different was added. The commanding officer asked us to remain standing after the changing of the guard, to remain standing in silence because a Sergeant Jennings 
was completing 27 months of that special duty and wanted as his last act uh, as a guard at the, un- at the tomb of the unknown soldier to pay his own respects to the unknown soldiers who were represented there at the tomb. And so Jennings' family was escorted to a place of honor and Jennings came and stood before his commanding officer and was handed four red roses. And Jennings smartly turned and went to the tomb of the soldier of World War I, carefully knelt down and placed a red rose on that tomb. And then he proceeded to the tomb of the soldier from World War II, and then Korea, and then Vietnam, placing one red rose on each tomb. And then he smartly stood and turned back, came to his commanding officer. They stood at attention and locked eyes, and Jennings reached out, and the commanding officer shook his hand. And then Jennings took the white gloves, which represented his special service, and returned them to his commanding officer. He saluted the officer, turned and went and joined his family, and they left. Harry Heinz says, with tears running down my face, I thought of standing before my Lord Jesus someday, taking off my gloves and handing them to him. I don't know about you folks, but I want to hit the finish line being able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith and a crown of righteousness is laid up for me. Let's make that our aspiration. However much longer we may have to serve, let's finish strong. Let's pray. Lord, what a high and privileged calling is ours as followers of Jesus to be not only recipients of grace, but to be called into our Lord's service. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to take seriously that calling, that we may walk in a manner worthy of it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on the right prize, that which matters most of all. Lord, may we not be tempted by the allure of power or wealth or, or, or sex or any other thing. Lord, may what this world has to offer us pale in comparison to the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. May we long most of all for that day when we can stand before our Savior and see him face to face May we live for that day when we will be enveloped in his loving embrace. And Lord, I pray that above all, you will guard us from falling, that you will teach us by your spirit to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.